clubhouse. They want me to be their dad. I am giving them that. I am Gregory fucking Peck in there. They watch me stand up to Johnny Xander's showboating, and they trust me more. They watch me allow in evidence that they really want to hear, and they love me for that. And all the while, I am making them feel secure. I am making them feel safe by telling them that I love them and that I am not frightened by anyone. I get them to look up to me, to take their cues from me, and then later, not now, not yet, but when it matters... I tell them what to think. They won't know what's happening. They won't ever see it happening. But it will happen. Twelve of our peers will do exactly what I want them to do. And this is Mike. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, the Your Honor podcast. Tonight, we're talking about part eight of Your Honor. Uh, now, when we watched the screeners, Caroline, they did not yet have the credits in them. So I can't tell you officially who wrote and directed this episode, but IMDb has a listing for it. So I'm going to use theirs just so we could give someone credit. According to IMDb, part eight was written by Frank Baldwin. And IMDb lists that the episode was directed by Eva Sorhaug. She's got one of those funny names that's got like the line through it, you know, like uh, like she's making like a zero with her like oh in her name wow so, yeah so i don't know that's I don't, I don't know how you pronounce a zero with a line I, yeah i'm going with sorhaug and and forgive okay. me in advance with for my poor american <laughs> pronunciation caroline mike bad news caroline mike bad news breaking news bad news bad news <laughs> covid has hit this trial mike uh was it weird was it was it post-traumatic stress disorder inducing to see all of a sudden empty class uh, an empty courtroom a couple of masks popping up in here i would say that because i have a couple of other shows doing the same thing right now where it's like they'll be saying something and then all of a sudden someone will be like thank you for coming two weeks later and respecting my quarantine. And then they'll just continue talking. Since that's been going on throughout, I guess I'm sort of becoming a little desensitized to it. It's like, okay, this is the part where they're going to try to start weaving in strange things we might see now in the way things are being shot. So that was mainly the thing I was thinking of. I wasn't putting myself into that courtroom as much as I was taking it as like, okay, I'm a TV watcher who's now going to have to accept any adjusting that goes on with how many people are on screen or how far apart they're standing, that type of thing. The only show I'm actively watching right now where actually COVID has come up is Prodigal Son because we're covering mm-hmm. that here at the clubhouse. Go check out The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official pod, uh, Prodigal Son podcast. Uh, and the creators on that show specifically when getting into season two made it a post-COVID made it post-COVID. So in that world, and their, and their reasons, we, we interviewed them for the very first episode, and their reasons were because they wanted to envision a world where people didn't have to go around in masks anymore. They wanted for their own sanity, because their real world was people on set wearing masks in between takes and, and having to COVID test everyone. So they wanted to present a world on camera for their own sanity and ours that it was like a post-COVID world. 
I like that. I like kind of that joy and hope and optimism. Uh, you wouldn't expect that from a show about serial killer, uh, you know, or, or a serial killer in his in his family. I, I'm kind of gotten used to living in a post COVID world, so this was really. I wouldn't. I want to say it was stress inducing, but it was a little stress inducing to all of a sudden see a mask or two pop up here and there. And because COVID has hit New Orleans now, watching that scene where like they go to dinner, you know, and they're and and New Orleans and thinking back the other day when all those people were having the in in the red were having the bourbon street like street party and all those yeah, people that are still right. in the courtroom i mean the courtroom's pretty empty but there's still a lot of people there in the courtroom and only two people wearing masks one of which is not in the courtroom anymore at the end of the episode so right. yeah so it, it's a little bit stress inducing i just want to kind of shake them and be like people people you gotta wear masks yeah you gotta you gotta you gotta switch to you know zoom court hearings like get out of the courtroom people but we didn't know Right. That, so that's the thing. We didn't know when the virus first hit, you know, the court reporter and Mrs. Ms. Long, the juror who were wearing masks like, like they're early adopters, but they were far, far ahead of the curve for most of us. Right. And actually gives me like a lot of respect for Miss Long that she is clearly somebody who is, you know, hip to the information out there. She pays attention. Yes. And, you know, she's the one who's got her mask on. I mean, of all those people, I want Miss Long on my side. This long is with it. She's asking the right questions. You know, I, I think it's not lost on Michael, especially. He's watching the whole jury. He's he's trying to get a, a feel for where they're going. When he tells her later on, I know exactly how a jury is going to rule by the end of the first day. I believe him. You know, he is someone with that much experience in front of juries. He, he probably has that kind of sixth sense developed. And I think he sees there's enough doubt there maybe for Carlo to get off, except for her, because she's crying at all the wrong spots if you're someone who's trying to get Carlo Baxter off of this murder charge. You know, she she's asking questions that are giving him doubts, uh, giving Michael doubts that she's going to rule uh, against acquitting the court note that comes in uh, is self-defense, not an applicable defense inside of a prison cell. You know, he does the handwriting check to confirm that that's her who sent that note. Yeah, he's yeah. got his sights set on her early on, but that's a testament to how on the ball she is. Mm-hmm, absolutely. She's asking all the right questions. I love Miss Long, though she's not long for this jury. Oh, but I'm boom. <laughs> Chai the salmon, tip your waitresses, we're here all week. I, I gotta ask a question, and this is a delicate matter, but I think you see it once and you can say it's a coincidence. You see it twice, and I think you have to at least ask the question. We talked last week heavily about how Michael maybe has gone so full villain he can't be redeemed after what he did to his boss, Sarah. Sarah is also a, a woman of color. It's troubling that for the second week in a row, Michael takes out a woman of color at the knees. I think that's problematic. And maybe you can say it's it's coincidence, maybe, you know, because if it had been a white guy who was asking these questions, Michael also would have gone and removed him. Okay. But race is a part of this case, though, and race has been a part of this show. It's not a white guy asking these questions about Carlo's likely uh, ability to use self-defense as a believable a believable defense against murdering Kofi Jones. It's a woman of color, it, it, who, a woman who has identified with Justin James when he's on giving his testimony about what Carlo did to him three years prior, listening to uh, the DA talk about what Kofi went through. It's her who's crying. It's her who is identifying. It's her who's asking the right questions. And so I, I don't think you can just say it's coincidence 
I, I, it's it's troubling that this is a side of Michael, and and maybe it shouldn't be, and maybe Justice is blind and and all of that, but it's not though, and it's really not, and it's really not in this show. I I think that's another knock against Michael that we have to at least take into consideration in the world that we live in now. I think we have to take that into consideration of of his redeemability, of his good guy status that I think he continues to see himself as, maybe less so, but I think he still considers himself a good guy. I, I think that question becomes harder and harder to answer. Does that enter into your mind as you're watching this at all? I mean, there's other stuff to talk about that he does in this episode that goes towards maybe his villainy. I think it's a good point that the show has been placing race and the justice system, specifically in New Orleans, front and center, and so... So the fact that not only, you know, are Sarah and Lee both professional women in the world that do absolutely make sense for for why he chose them for their different parts that they're playing in this. But they specifically chose to have them be black women who, you know, when he goes through these moves, they are going to have a harder time in this justice system the way that they've been presenting it to us in the show. So this particular area, this particular precinct, these particular cops they've shown have been racist and have had way, way, way harder sentences on people of color. So what's going to happen to Sarah, I think is extremely scary. I don't have any faith. They've, they've shown me not to have faith that she's going to be treated fairly. The viral video of her, like who filmed that? Yeah. Like this was so painful it goes to show you how easy it is and just how fragile everyone is but specifically people of color of, of like you can be so easily derailed from something that you know god she was just barely barely doing you know having anything to do with these people you know yeah. she should not have had anything to do with this i want to get back to sarah because that isn't i mean it opens the episode her talking to michael and the the irony of him of calling him the only good judge in the in the building yeah. all of that for the second week in a row you know we're watching people say you know nice things about him and having to watch him you know receive the accolades and kind of squirm a bit but let, let's stay with ms long though for a second though because beyond the race aspect of it when he has her in the chambers and he confronts her with the article on or articles searching about Kofi and Kofi's family being blown up and Kofi being arrested for the for the hit and run. Uh, those are what's in her search history. That's what that's what Michael rests on to throw her off of the case because he had put a ban on, which is not uncommon uh, for especially in high profile cases. Juries are always instructed to not discuss the case outside of the courtroom. Don't discuss the case with your family. Don't discuss the case with your friends. Don't discuss the case with each other uh certainly you know you're supposed you're supposed to put on blinders and not pay attention in any way shape or form to a case do you think that that's really something that is a reasonable thing that our justice system asks jurors to do to really be able to put on blinders especially now maybe not when this whole system was set up but now in our 24-hour news cycle with our social media with our phones being bombarded with like news alerts and stuff you can be a pretty straight and narrow kind of person and accidentally get banged with a lot of information in a day. So what do you think? Should they try to should they just sequester people and say, you got to stay here because we just there's just no way you can really reasonably stay away from the news? Uh, yeah, I think I think sequestering is a 
is about the only option you have beyond just the legal fiction that people are doing the things that we've always asked them to do. It's like when you see in this case, someone says something, we saw it in this, we saw it in this episode, you hear a voice message on Carlo's phone, you know, they've tipped you off, you know, they know they're coming for you, don't go back to the hotel, revealing that someone had tipped off Jimmy that that Carlo's about to get arrested. But you hear it in, you hear it in every single trial on television, or if you've ever served jury duty, if you've ever gone to a courtroom and watched jury duty, things get said all the time. The other side objects. The judge agrees with the other side and then turns to the jury and say, you'll please disregard the thing you just heard. What? I know. I think, I mean, it feels so unreasonable. It is, but the, it goes, I think the idea of it goes more towards the tension that you were only going to judge a case based on what you're presented in a courtroom. So I don't think it's something you could throw the baby out with the bathwater because it is an underpinning of the idea of a fair trial, even though it's a total fiction because human beings don't work that way. Human beings are are consumptive entities, consumptive animals that socialize and interact with one another. It's basically like saying, don't be a human being. This is what we tell our juries, right? But I think you have to still maintain that, though you're right, you could get around that by taking away their phones and keeping them sequestered, you know, monitoring, you know, tell them you can make phone calls from your hotel rooms, but we're going to be monitoring those phone calls. You know, whatever it is, there are ways if if the case is important enough and you're worried about the, and even I just said it now, the idea that a case is important enough. Well, aren't all cases supposed to be the same? Right. Uh, You can't sequester every jury on every case because that's financially not feasible to do. So certain cases are unfortunately more important because they're more press worthy than others. It's weird to me that this case is not a sequestered jury. I agree with you because, I mean, how do they have their phones? This is such a high profile case with it being the Baxters. And then you've got this like a a murder happening in jail. I mean, the whole thing is like, oh, well, to be fair, it looks pretty clear to me. It looked pretty clear to me in this episode that they only got their phones back at the end of the day. So they did not have their phones, which is is pretty is not uncommon in today's world that you're not on your phones because one they don't want you're you're i mean even spectators are not supposed to have their phones on uh, let alone be checking them and jurors and only lawyers uh, honestly have their phones with them or uh, the judge typically uh in a courtroom these days and and that's because they don't want you checking things on your phone they don't want you getting text messages from people in the courtroom be like oh oh he did it you know they don't want any of that kind of thing or or sending messages back and forth from the way they were putting the phones up on the banister at the end of the day it makes it makes me think that they were sequestering the phones during the trial day but that gets to a question that you and I both had. We turned to each other. Well, we watched this. We, we both watched this over the phone and then turned to each other virtually and said, how did he get those articles on her phone? Yeah, that's a frightening part, too, is that it's like we are so vulnerable with things like that. You know, the the entire arrest of Sarah and then everything that happened with Miss Long just made me feel like, oh, my gosh, someone could get onto your phone and look up a bunch of stuff and you could be in trouble. Someone could, you know, set you up like they did with Sarah. The whole thing just feels like, oh, my God, we trust each other so much to do the right thing. And you never would suspect that someone, you know, I was just telling you about this. I have this Facebook group that I'm in and a woman comes on and confidentially tells the other women, you guys, I'm in a bad domestic situation and I'm leaving. One woman in this group screenshots it and sends it to this woman's husband. 
What? Husband comes. Oh yeah. Husband comes home and like all hell breaks loose oh, and like shows her the screenshot. Yeah, she's leaving with the baby. She tells us she's taking pictures of things that she's selling to have enough money. She's scooping up her stuff and her husband comes home with the screenshot of the group. This is a private Facebook group. The amount of trust we place into other people and how they can blow our lives straight up. Oh, it's frightening. That's terrifying. That See, when we think about the levels of evil that are in people, oh, women who do not support other women, special place in hell. Definitely. I mean, one, Dante, if he was writing The Inferno today, would definitely put uh, women hating on other women in one of the rings for sure. Can you imagine putting someone in danger like that? No, no. And I, I don't mean, care, man, woman, whatever, saying, I, I'm a victim. I am scared. I'm about to run away. I'm trying to sell a couple of these items, have enough money to get to where I need to go to be safe. I spent the earliest parts of my legal career, the first few years of my legal career, I spent uh, being an advocate for women in domestic violence marriages who were trying to get out but didn't have the resources to pay for lawyers. And it was it was a uh, like a free workshop to kind of help them prepare the papers and and get them out of these relationships. And I became very invested in all of these women's lives. And it was heartbreaking. I, not something I could probably ever do professionally just because I don't I'm not emotionally strong enough to do it. But I became radicalized against in against men who beat their women and people who do not support women trying to get out and you'd be shocked i mean i i saw it time and time again the lack of network that women so often had that people that they thought they'd be able to count on family and friends and they're just not there uh when they need them most it, it's it's heartbreaking and it's anger inducing like a rage inducing to see which is all a long way and not related to this well it doesn't have to do with a court case it does very much have to do with how much we depend on other people people we know and people we don't know to do the right thing and not you know, basically implode our own, our lives. And it's, it's frightening. I mean, there's so many times I have said things to people and I know I've even said it to you where it's like, I could never be, you know, this close to somebody or this, whatever to somebody, because I'm afraid they will bite me. I'm afraid they will do something to me. And and everyone laughs at me and I say, what makes you think they won't? <laughs> like right. yeah. You're just trusting people in this way. That is, is kind of ridiculous like they owe you nothing well in the same way that we put trust in our legal system i mean so much of your honor the series revolves around michael making withdrawals against a lifetime spent as an honorable man and judge and he is just writing checks against that this entire series and it's all of that is just goodwill that he has built up it's the same way that Kofi's mother trusted him because he went to bat for her in her case and then thought you know that would continue and that she would he would help her get Kofi right. freed and he was like I can't help you that that screaming scene that uh, you know I always come back to in the hallway so you just never know when your luck runs out with someone it's it's him just drawing against the goodwill and 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 Ms. Long in this episode kind of calls him on it uh, really I mean she's the first one who's really taken him to task but Miss Long right away seizes on this and says essentially you know I know what's going on here and the fix is in kind of thing that's the accusation she makes to him when she says you know what I'm going to go outside to the press that's waiting right outside the doors when he says to her sit down maybe the most sinister he has seemed in this entire series and then 
Caroline proceeds to implicitly threaten his daughter, her daughter's safety. How does Michael Desiato redeem himself in any way, shape or form with the things he's done? Oh, I don't think there's any redemption. I honestly think this is a situation at this point where lives are gone. You know, entire families have been blown up. Like there is nothing that you can do to bring those people back. Mm-hmm. Little man it has to live an entire life now with no one. I, I don't think that there is anything. I don't think he can come back from this. I think the best Michael can hope for is that he keeps Adam alive at the end of this, but his his soul and, and any kind of any kind of human redemption, I don't know what he could possibly do to salvage anything and honestly for him the only i think the best we could hope for for michael at the end of this is that adam makes it out alive i've asked you in other shows like what makes this a good ending like i asked you in the undoing what is it that we're looking for for to be a good finale that we feel satisfied with what is a win now that we only have two episodes coming up after this one is winning Adam is alive and also somehow has no ties back to this. Like the Baxters know that he did it, but somehow there has been some sort of, I don't even know what to say, compensation. Yeah, something that happened that he is free to go. Are we okay if Michael has to die? Like, what are we okay with? What's a good, acceptable ending? The only ending that is a good ending in this show is Adam making it out alive. Whether the Baxters find out he's the one who actually did the thing or not, and and he's they're absolutely going to find out, you know, Fia and Adam are going to go to the Baxters for dinner. Jimmy knows Michael's got a son named Adam now, knows about his age. It's going to it's going to click. Even if Adam doesn't spill the beans, which is very, very possible, we have to get Hunter back on here to talk about Adam and how close he is to cracking. So I, I think that Adam is going to crack at some point. But Jimmy's going to find out Adam is the one who actually did the thing, either because he's going to put it together that's too convenient for this boy coming into Fia's life right at the same time, then learning his last name is Desiato, just because Adam's going to spill the beans. He's going to get there. They're going to be passing the you know uh, the the sauce around the table the gravy around the table at dinner and he's gonna be like oh and by the way i'm the one who actually did it blah not coffee (laughs) whatever it is jimmy's gonna find out i think if michael pays the price so that adam can live that's the good ending i think it's the only good ending and maybe the best michael actually has to die I don't think he has to die. I think... What if he loses his career? Is that enough? He has to be ruined in some very permanent way. I honestly, I kind of feel he has to die. I feel not that I believe in a Hammurabi code, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life kind of justice. I I don't. Just We said this weeks ago. The idea, like in Watergate, that the cover-up is so much worse than the crime. Michael, Michael, not that Rocco losing his life is something to sneeze at. What might Michael has done to Michael's world, to the people in Michael's world, to the innocents in Michael's world, Ms. Long, Sarah, what he's put Adam through, what he's put Charlie through, what he's done to Lee, the manipulation he's done to Lee, the memory of his dead wife, not to say nothing of his own self, that I feel almost demands a blood sacrifice be paid in my in, in terms of Michael's life. Ouch. I certainly don't want him to die. I don't want him to die either, but... (laughs) (laughs) It would be most comfortable to me, I guess, if we actually launched into a season two 
more complicated web of looping in some of these other people who agree to be a part of this cover-up. Senator Grandma, for one, Lee, for another, um, where people end up having to make choices and really affect their lives in ways that like they could never see it coming. That to me would be a satisfying finale to season one is that more people get roped in. I really don't want it to just end in two more episodes and just have it be like, you know, Michael is, is out of the picture and Adam lives, but that's the end of the story. That doesn't feel like enough, like, like karmically the world hasn't been set right. You know what I mean? Like, you don't there has think to be Michael's life more. being forfeit, you don't think that sets the karma balance? No, because because that implies that Kofi's life and Rocco's life and Famale's and the children and all that have to be on the other side of the seesaw for just Michael. And to me, that's... And what about Sarah and Lee and all the other people who are sitting on the other side of the teeter-totter from Michael who who have been ruined? I'm not saying Michael dying balances the karma scale against scale against Rocco's death. Michael has to die to balance the scale for all the things Michael has done. All of the, all of the ruinous things Michael has done. I'm just saying I don't think it's enough. I think that other lives are going to end up having to also pay the price. Senator Grumma's. You know, like other people in his family are going to have to be on the other side of the seesaw hmm. and I, maybe I, I also was basing it on the series ending at the end of this i i my answer is completely different if we're talking a season two <laughs> well i didn't say I, anything could have been you could have said a unicorn flies out of the sky and changes the whole ending yeah I, there was no parameters no well because that's the end of, this story has to end this chapter has to end the rocco mm-hmm. carlo kofi little man Adam, no, not Little Man. Little Man's story, I think, is just getting going. I think, I think he becomes a major focus of a season two if there is one. I feel like, I feel like he's really being the powder kept dry for something big at the end. The more the series goes on, yeah. uh, uh, which is what you've been saying all along, but I really felt it the last two episodes uh, when Jimmy comes to Big Bo's place and Little Man is having a little silent snit behind him, and then in this episode when he <laughs> leaves the courtroom, She's, he's judging. He's throwing shade over there yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Little Man has a big role to yet to play, whether that's at, in, at the end of this season or if there's a season two. I think if this series goes on, you need Michael then to stick around then because I, I think the season two has to be that he becomes really a, a puppet of the Baxters or Desire or both in some way and that the hole continues to be dug because you're, you're saying you're saying his death doesn't balance the karmic ledger. I'm saying it never can be balanced anything uh, because then you be, be beyond Michael's death. You're just piling bodies on You're You're continuing to dig a hole that can never be that you can never climb out of. There has to be a there has to be a line drawn at some point to say this is enough payment or else or else you get mutually assured destruction. No one walks out alive. If if you continue to say this has to account for that and this life has to be for for, for this thing, you're never going to get even again. Completely agree. It's very Jesus died for our sins kind of thing. Michael is the Jesus that of his own of his own actions trying to protect his son kind of has to die for all of these sins that have been committed. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to this. So let's keep going in this episode and collect some more clues. 
Michael somehow gets the articles on her phone. We're overlooking somehow. It's weird that the show didn't show it to us, but presumably while the phone was in the court's possession, he was able to get her password and hack into it somehow and get the articles on there, which he uses to throw her off. the password part that really is bugging me. Well, it's just weird. I mean, there are, th- there are certain things shows should tell you, and there are certain things shows should show you. I think it's weird we got neither. We just got... We just have to take for granted. Step yeah, one, get her off the it. jury. Step two, question mark. <laughs> step three, profit. You know, right, I mean, it's, right, right. it's... It's it's how to make a million dollars first to get a million dollars. Now, listen to the story, and you're like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think this is something where I would have... Because this is a guy who had to ask drug dealers and drug users in a in a in an elevator how to track a, a phone. I gotta think this is all the Baxters, right? The Baxters, and then, and then he tells the Baxters something thing and the Baxters you know, tell Cusack or somebody to make a, a, a dirty cop do something. I just don't know how you get into someone's phone. I suppose there's all kinds of ways. You and I even talked about that because I called early and we were watching this episode and I said he's setting her up. But when he when he sees her crying from his bench and he sees her wiping a tear away in the jury box, I said to you, I said he's throwing her off the jury. Like she is she is too much of a of a weak link in his plan for Carlo. He has to get her off. So I assumed that he somehow got the Baxters involved kind of, you know, without going so far as killing her, somehow involved them in their muscle and their and their, you know, abilities to do something. But I would have liked to have seen that. Well, it's what we're using as the blanket excuse for how Sarah got pulled over and like exactly what went down with that. We're just assuming and like, why was it videotaped for, for viral video type thing? Like, we're just assuming that the Baxters are in on this and every little which way that something looks like a string had to be pulled. We're just assuming they did it, that they've got yeah. the strings. Well, I think Sarah getting and we're going to I think we're going to move to Sarah now. But I think Sarah getting arrested, that all being orchestrated by the police makes a lot more sense and is a lot easier to connect to the Baxters. Mm-hmm. As far as we know, only Michael is compromised in Michael's courtroom. I, I don't think we've seen any evidence that his bailiff or his court stenographer are in the pockets of the Baxters. <laughs> and with COVID times, not a lot of other people hanging around that courtroom. So, so Michael, I feel like Michael almost has to have been the one to have done it. But I just don't get it. Again, yeah. it scares the bejesus out of me because right. I have this really blind trust that like, if you don't have my password, you can't get in my phone i'm a baby like that <laughs> maybe we'll get and uh, maybe we'll get a line in episode nine where they had like grabbed her fingerprint from a glass of water and used it to <laughs> thumbprint or something or maybe the the courtroom is being videotaped and they zoomed in on her fingers when she was typing in her code they don't have their phones they don't have their phones during no, the I day know, though but maybe it's no i mean like maybe at the beginning i don't know there's 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 cameras in the courts in the whole court house maybe. i don't know i'm just making up some shit because otherwise yeah. it doesn't make no sense it doesn't make any sense it doesn't even make any sense but let, let's leave as long because as far as we know she michael she's gonna take michael's advice and go home and hug her daughter real tight because michael Oof. done threatened to kill his daughter no michael michael is <laughs> michael is implying that the baxters will kill her daughter but yeah. how would they know about her michael hmm? Hmm. <laughs> <Sir>. <laughs> 
<laughs> We're looking at you, <laughs> MD. You've got the metaphorical <laughs> blood on your hands, my man. Oh, my God. He's got more than metaphorical blood. He's got blood all over himself. He's got a bloody rag. Someone else whose metaphorical blood is all over his hands is Sarah's blood. I mean, the episode opens with us learning that Sarah's been offered a deal. If she, if she goes to rehab, even though she doesn't have a drinking problem, if she can get the arrest record expunged. She can get the arrest expunged from her record, presumably keep her license and keep her job in some capacity, though probably not her job, but at least maybe keep her law license. Uh, holy shit. And Caroline, we guessed at this. We almost joked about this, but she was going to his party. Yes. That's why she left so abruptly. We, I, th- yes. I don't know if we said this on mic or not if for episode no, she seven. Was try- and so she was maybe hurrying a little bit because she was trying to get ahead of him and right, leave. Right, We joked about it, though. To the party. You and I even talked about this. I don't know that we did it on mic or we did it after recording when we were rehashing some more of the episode. We specifically said she was probably she probably left so abruptly because she had to get to his birthday party, which she was. Oh, my God. You piece of shit, so Michael. You are terrible. a piece of shit. All right. So this is under the category some people know something's going wrong here okay that people's hair is going up on the back of their necks and judge sarah is number one on our list she knows something is awry she definitely suspects that the baxters are involved she's not looking at michael yet but we definitely feel like something's fishy so who's number two on our list well i think let's just point out the fact that she specifically says not even the judge's well, no, Michael's, Michael says not even the judges can be trusted because she, she paints this whole argument about how the government, the bed, they're all in bed with the Baxters. Uh, and he adds, he adds like a, like a little kick in the gut because he's so good at playing these, these parts when he's had time to think about what he's going to say. He's so good at selling his piles of bullshit. And he says, you can't trust the judges in this building either. And then she says that except for the one in courtroom 14, you know, who puts oh justice god. first. <laughs> oh my god. How do you not vomit all of your breakfast, Michael? How, how do you stand and look at her, anyone in the mirror? How, how do you look at yourself in the mirror? How do you look at this woman in the face? You've destroyed this woman's life and her career oh my god it's exhausting it's exhausting i think other women who are starting to smell something fishy i think nancy costello has to be wondering about that because michael shoots down her plan uh she he shoots down her theory that cusack is on the take of the baxters and he he makes the point that cusack is a prosecution witness in this case nancy yeah nance you can nancy drew yourself right out of here take your conspiracy (laughs) theories and get out of here yeah which come on michael i mean nancy is a smart woman but she must have real blinders on or some real loyalty to michael to not be looking at him a little askance don't you think uh i gotta say that i feel like the amount of people who just can see him in one way are so outnumbering any possible like percentages in their brain that they could that they could uh raise any doubts with him until he shows a crack which there's going to be i mean it's crazy to me the bloody rag at the dinner party and nancy saying is that blood yeah. Yeah. <laughs> shouldn't that have been a crackle well, I mean, he he dug headings that shit away so fast. I mean, it was in his hand, and she's like, "Is that blood?" And then he goes, "Poop, poop, 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 poop." 
Look over there. The Statue of Liberty's gone. I, I, I know that was Copperfield. I know. And then the rag is gone. Would he shove it down Jingo's throat? That poor dog eating everything on God's green earth that he shouldn't be eating. Yeah, there's so much stuff. The the car, you don't know. You're, you're so checked out on the car. You don't know when the damage to the front grill might have been done. I know when shit hits my car, whether or not yeah. I'm in the car. I notice if I'm missing a grill over my radiator on the front of my car. I notice if a dead kid's dirt bike is hanging out on the bottom of my suspension. I notice these things, Nancy. Nance. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much. I mean, when Nancy sits there and she starts having little thought bubbles above her head and playing over the series the way we've been playing the series, she's going to be like, that son of a bitch. Exactly. Because he is the only consistent thing that is involved in all of these weird all of these weird occurrences. There's only one thread. Michael. Yes, the Baxters. Yes, Cusack. Yes, Xander. They appear in different bubbles. They appear in different threads and maybe even multiple threads. But the only really recurring thread from start to finish is Michael. And Adam, but no one's thinking about Adam. But Michael has made himself... Uh, like shadowing over Adam, you know, covering him with his body is the only thread that's in every weird thing that has happened since the show started. Nancy's going to put that all together at some point. She's too smart. A She's woman and start cop. talking to another woman. Do you know who that's going to be? Senator Grandma. Senator Grandma. Senator Grandma and Nancy Costello are going to get in the same place at the same time. And the information is going to start coming out. I just know it. On top of just not liking her uh, son-in-law, what what did Senator Grandma pick up on this episode that didn't smell right? Senator Grandma was all over Jimmy Baxter and his Celtic pal Frankie leaving. And man, she was like peeping on it hard and was even more pissy when Michael was like, Meh, what you gonna do? She was like, what? Like, you're supposed to act freaked out, which Michael played that wrong. Like, he, he should have been like, oh my god, that is how frightening, how scary that we were so close to him. I'm gonna have, to make, a, I'm gonna have to make an announcement about that in the courtroom. That that shall not stand. No, he's he's totally like, what ifs? What? <laughs> he's he's starting to lose some of his edge here. He's starting to not play it quite right, which, you know, that's that is so realistic. And I appreciate that part of the writing very much. He can't be perfect at this. He can't just right. always have a magical article on a phone. Things have to go where people are starting to be like, wait, what? Because his mind must be frayed beyond belief. It's all he does. It's it's, it's the double this entendre. Is <laughs> this is his full time job. He has no other side hobbies. This is all he does. Mm-hmm. But it's a great. It's a great character trait that they have been so consistent on. When Michael has time to think through it and plan it, he is a master manipulator with backstory and story and 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 pages and pages that he can heap of bullshit that he can heap upon a story. He's excellent when he's able to stay on script and deliver whatever the lie is today in his pre-planned way. He is equally, and in the opposite direction, horrible at improv. (laughs) He cannot think on his feet. He cannot come up with lies on his feet. If there is a right emotion to take, he will for sure take the wrong one. It's not quite that bad, but I would definitely say, I thought that they did some good visual work in this episode, like at the very, very beginning, showing him lay out his, all of the things he needed, all of his clothes and stuff Mm -hmm. for the trial and everything. That, I thought, was a really great illustration of exactly what you're saying he does really thrive when he has an opportunity to lay everything out and plan it all out but when he doesn't 
things get all kinds of messy. And we've seen that happen over and over. I mean, look at the cleaning of the car, like you say. I mean, hello, that was some bad job. (laughs) Just to cross the T and dot the I on this point, the fact that he's able to put off Nancy... Uh, in the same way he's able to put off Ms. Long, right? His first tack before he threatens the daughter, his first tack is with Ms. Long is to say, you could go to the press, but you're going to call, you're going to make Justin James have to come back in here and testify again. This is going to be a jung hurry, we're a, a hung jury. There's going to be a mistrial. You're going to have, we're going to have to come do this trial again. You're going to make Justin James come in here and give that emotional testimony again. There's still not going to be any justice for Kofi again. I know the, tr- I know this jury. I feel it. I smell it. You're not needed for justice to be done. He says, he even says, and no one says this ever. He says, Carlo's going down. He he, yeah. make, he makes a promise, like, take it to your bookie, woman. The He's going down. And then with Nancy, he's ready for this also. He's ready for that line questioning. So he's able to prepare a great and passionate Michael Desiato classic speech to Ms. Long. And he's ready for Nancy when she brings up something anti-Carlo I, I don't think he's really ready for this specific Cusack thing, but he knows from earlier in the trial that someone tipped off the Baxters about Carlo being arrested. So him hearing Cusack's name probably just fills in a blank that he was already starting to per- uh, percolate about. And he he's ready, and he comes back with, no, 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 let this slide. You didn't mention this to the DA yet, did you? And we have to be rigorous with the evidence. So he takes, he takes her accusation and really makes it a concern conspiracy theory and his point being like that the evidence is so strong that carlo did this and will be convicted of it if we rock the boat with conspiracy things like cusack being on the take you're only going to blow up this trial we've got a slam dunk he essentially is telling nancy the same thing let's be rigorous with the evidence that we know for sure and it will speak to itself he doesn't say the same thing he says to Ms. long he doesn't say i know juries i know they're going to take carlo down but he's implying essentially that be rigorous with the evidence i hate that phrase be rigorous with the evidence dot 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 unspoken is and justice will be served. He's ready for all these things because, like you said, it's part of the same methodical man that lays out all of his belongings in little lines and rows, which I, the little OCD and me totally appreciates. It's such a stark contrast that I love how they've done it in the show. We really got to see it again here tonight greatly. We talked about them being at that restaurant, Caroline. Were you surprised for the reason for the season? Why the Desiados and family in this COVID world were gathering without masks on in this outdoor dining experience? I mean, I wasn't surprised within the episode. I was glad that they were going to confront this whole issue with NYU and all of the mess that Adam had made here. It was getting to me about this idea that we went to this interview and we didn't talk about it again and i really didn't know whether he had gotten in or not when he tells franny you know oh he he didn't get in i was kind of dying mike at the amount of effort that franny was putting into making future plans with adam and how dismissive adam was how did you feel about this relationship and like what adam has done here we haven't seen Franny in four episodes now, mm-hmm. and it, it, I didn't think the show was obviously going to forget about it. The last thing we saw was her learning about Adam killing this boy. 
they couldn't just leave that thread out there. But they have spent so much time since then working Adam next to Fia that I was curious how Franny was going to come back into it. And she came back into it in a big way in this episode. I was shocked that she had made so many plans already without talking to Adam, presumably, uh, about not only continuing to want to be with him after knowing he killed this kid that and no one is saying anything about it but like moving with him to new york and defending it i mean he kind of calls her on it because even he's like the fuck she's like yeah you'll be 18 by the time you start college and and then it'll be a new place no one will know our history you know i won't be your teacher anymore i mean she she has clearly watched a hulu's a teacher she clearly has you know thought about all the things that woman does horribly wrong in that show and is improved upon it it's really kind of sick but it's also kind of delusional it's not romantic there are going to be people out there to be like well it's so it's kind of romantic that she's actually truly in love with him and has made all these plans no it's sick it's sick and disturbing she is she is someone who should be locked up on her own accord i was shocked she had given up her job she was ready to defend to him with the idea of them romping around in nyc together my mind was fucking blown i wasn't very surprised he lied about NYU. Not that we knew it was a lie at that very second, but literally we find out the next scene when Michael opens up his acceptance package, which is like a total weird dad thing to do. <laughs> I was surprised he opened it. I mean, we knew when it was a big package that yes. it was obviously an acceptance letter. Yeah. So I felt really shitty. And when he when he did the motion that it, I mean, it was just such the subtle thing of like resealing the envelope as much as as we have seen Michael do so many deceptive things, there was this this just ease in which he just resealed the envelope as if we didn't even need to 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 let him know that we opened this envelope. I was like, it really bothered me, Mike. Like it really bothered me how easily he just looked through the mail and closed it back up. Is that messy of me? No, everything about the NYU storyline, Adam and Franny, was really icky in this episode. Michael opening up the envelope, like fondling the shirt and then putting it back and sealing it up and then throwing a dinner and then not telling Adam why they're all at dinner and why doesn't Adam ask why we're going out to, I don't know, my kid would definitely ask. I would have asked my parents, why are we going out on a school night or whatever the hell, you know, for dinner with everyone? This is this is the party crew. You got Senator Grandma, you got Charlie, you got Lee, you got Nancy, you know, we brought the whole, I don't think Nancy was actually there, but you got the, you got what we have established as the Desiato extended party crew. So something big is happening. Is Are you and Lee getting married? What is happening? You know, if I'm at, I'm, I'm asking questions. And he does, but actually, you know, so what's the deal? Why are we here? But yeah, Michael's ease with which he opens uh, the envelopes, looks through it, seals it up again. Man, that's the joy for me. I love when Tom gets packages in the mail, even if I know what's in there. I love waiting for him to come open it and sit there and bounce up and down on the balls of my feet to see what's in the thing. <laughs> even when I know what's in there. I mean, I, he has a couple of subscription boxes that I get him. I love when they come and I sit there and I put them on his bed and I sit there and I kind of like open it up, open it up, open it up. Because I don't know. I like presents being opened, whether I'm opening it or not or someone else. I would never take that away. I don't know. That's just me. We know anyone who's gone to college knows if you get the big package, you're in. Yeah. Uh, it just it was so unnecessary. And it just shows to me where he has no boundaries anymore. Yes. Well, that's the thing. I, I'm not put off that he was so excited that he opened the thing. But 
leave it open. Be like, I couldn't help myself. I was so excited. I want you to go to NYU so badly. I I am so invested in your happiness. I open up an envelope like I am animal from the Muppets. I cannot, <laughs> for the life of me, a, a bill, a, a package, a nice car, whatever it is, I open it up like the world is ending and the key to saving humanity is inside the fucking thing. Wow. Yeah. I would never be able to do what Michael did with that NYU package to begin with, but I would have left it there and like a dog who just peed on the carpet, like would have been like, sorry, I couldn't help it. And, and, but because that I would have been okay with the instinct to open the thing I get, but I, like I said, I would have left it because I like a good surprise. I like a good package, but the sealing it up and the ease with which he doesn't even think about it. He's just like, I'm going to open it up, pika, 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 and then seal it back up. It really is gross and really shows that he's just gone so far on the bend. But I wanted to get, because you asked a good question that I didn't answer about Adam and him lying to Franny. That didn't really surprise me because boys, well, men, but especially boys who are 17, 18 years old, don't handle relationships typically the greatest. He clearly has fallen in love with Fia, or at least has convinced himself, I think, that he's in love with Fia. The easiest path forward for all involved is, I'm just going to lie to her about this thing. You know, I graduate school in a month or two from now, and it'll all just kind of work itself out. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the ghosting, the ghost protocol seems from Adam's point of view, where you could see where maybe that's like the best way forward. How much can this teacher really come after me and really chase me down if I just ghost her? That didn't terribly surprise me, though. I had a question and I want to ask you about this. Is he lying to her because he thinks he's in love with Fia now and wants to stay in New Orleans and he wants to build this life with Fia or is he doing it because he wants to spare Franny any possible fallout for whatever is going through his adolescent mind about what he did with Rocco and the Baxters and no, all of that stuff? I think it's definitely A, without a doubt. Like, Me I too. think he's only just, like, moving on in his own brain and heart, which is super sad. I mean, yep. the fact that she obviously was that in love with him that she had already put in her notice at her, at her job. Again, another Desiato man ruining another de- another woman's career. Ugh, I think it's all terrible. Well, the same Desiato man also, though, right? It's Michael who actually eventually blows up for, uh, Adam's spot. Because, yeah. hey, Dad, don't go confront your kid's teacher at the school and ask him, about about can you talk to him about having cold feet about going to NYU? I mean, the look on Franny's face on her little uh, muppety uh, Vespa <laughs> that little moped thing. I was like, is she for real riding a moped? Does she think she's in the sh- the, the, the cobbled streets of Florence that she's I on her Vespa? Know. Drinking I don't her- know. Uh, oh, Franny, this is why Adam oh, left you, Franny. <laughs> I, I, this you know, is Adam turns to her and says, I left you because you're a moped. Oof. <laughs> it, yeah, it's no good. It's no good. It's no good. It's very bad. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Guys, if you're listening, don't ghost your teachers it's, like this. Listen, don't sleep with your teacher in the first place. Yeah. If you're mature enough to sleep with your teacher, have the balls to break up with her. Okay? Yeah. Like, that's and, it. If you got big enough balls to sleep with her, you got big enough balls to leave in a way that's not ghosting. That's bullshit behavior. No one should do that at any age. Guys, stick around. We're going to be starting our love and sex relationship uh, podcast <laughs> on Patreon. You are not going to want to miss it. It's going to sound a lot like. 
like man up and stop acting like a fool. And dads, don't go creeping on your teachers, ambushing your your kids' teachers, ambushing them when they get to school on their little mopeds. Don't do that. Don't be that guy. Talk to your kid. Don't rely on your teachers to do your parentings. Hey, Mike, did you take a gap year? No, I actually did accelerated college. I, I did dislike college so much I actually did it in three years instead of four. Look at you. You're crazy. I did it in four, but I did it starting at 17. So I feel like I ran to college as fast as I could and basically just got going right away. Yep, I thought that this whole gap year thing, is it just me or like, should everyone just have like a laugh track every single time a teenager says, I think I'm going to take a gap year. Should this, the, the studio audience be like, <laughs> because it's, it's, it's always the cliche line in a show that means like, I'm full of bullshit. I don't care if it's a valid thing to do. Go travel the world. I don't care. But it's always used in TV as like the trope to mean some bullshit's going down. Right. And Michael, to his credit, I mean, he's definitely chewing on the inside of his cheek during the scene when when Adam says that, embarrassing him from Michael's standpoint around the Desiato party crew who is gathered. I mean, again, none of this is appropriate for outside the family. This should have been handled in the living room with Django, yeah, Michael. This is why he did it, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. This is manipulation 101. This is why you break up in public so that the other person doesn't flip out and kill you, right? You take them to a nice restaurant to do it. Yeah. So they have to behave and not do anything. So he knows Adam can't storm off. He's not going to do that in front of Charlie and everybody else in front of Grandma. So he's got to sit there and take it. Yeah, but he doesn't really, though. I mean, to Adam's he credit. doesn't. To Adam's credit, though, he uh, I will say of this experience, Adam actually has grown a decent spine more so than he had. Uh, this is not the same asthmatic ridden kid who ran over Rocco and then eventually fleed the site uh, scene. I feel like he's actually had some stealing of his nerves. And I think it's as a direct result of being so shut out of everything his father's doing that he's doing in his son's name. If that makes any sense, I think I think Michael has Michael has iced him out so much. So um, I was impressed and surprised a bit that Adam actually brought up the gap year thing. I certainly would have had this conversation at home and I would not if I was Michael, I would not have continued that conversation. I would have been like, we can talk about this at home. Let's just enjoy ourselves at the dinner. I would have pivoted to let's avoid an awkward public scene. How can you do that when the entire this entire dinner is to celebrate it? How are you like, I don't know, just pivot and like start eating dinner eat it. why are we even here eating dinner then like well, well i wanted what? to give michael credit though because he doesn't actually shut it down right away he asks him so he asks him some really good questions that you should ask are you gonna travel to europe no i'm gonna do a nola gap year oh you mean so you're just gonna do the same thing you've already done because adam yeah. skips school all the time why because it's school days and he's out with thea all the time know, right? or hanging out in, or hanging out in courtrooms be like, I think you're already taking a gap year. It's called your senior year, apparently. Yeah, yeah, buddy, they don't hold court on the weekends, so you're missing school to go hang out in the courtroom and watch yeah. watch your girlfriend's oldest brother be on trial for a kid who's for the murder of a kid who's dead because of you. What and kind your of father. balls does it take to come peeking around the courtroom with your father sitting up there and having to watch you walk around like you're just stalking around in the back, pacing? What are you? Ah, what are you doing? I mean, bigger balls than one has to confront his teacher and break up with her. 
Well, this is all balls all the time now. That's what this this podcast mainly is now. Well, I mean, so, but I mean, isn't it the same way though that the same reason Michael had this dinner to confer, to give Adam the news about NYU, banking on him not causing a scene? Adam's doing the same thing. He can walk into the courtroom because he knows his father's not going to interrupt this murder trial to scold his son in front of everyone and expose him as being there because. Yeah, how weird is that? So Adam's playing the same game Michael's playing. I'm going to do something, and it's going to put my father in a position that he's not going to be able to object to. Do the thing and ask for forgiveness versus asking per- for permission. I have always found this to go poorly. I every my, my mother's rule was if you ask me to go on a sleepover in front of the person, the answer is no. I didn't ever understand that, but I do now. Like, as I get older, it's like one of those things like, oh, it was a lesson in having private conversations privately. And we're going to embarrass you and say no to you if you do it in front of other people. Like, we're going to teach you where is an acceptable conversation to be had. And you're not going to manipulate me by thinking this person's standing here, so I have to say yes out of, like, manner's sake. And I was like, damn! Like, I had to learn that the hard way. Episode ends with Franny, who's now gone uh, Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction on her moped, moped edition, mm. uh, spying <laughs> Adam being hand in hand with Fia being all lovey dovey. Moped edition. <laughs> Fatal Attraction Moped Edition, yeah. I like that very much. Okay, so now... Woman scorned? What was your take when you saw that as the episode closed out? Uh, I think everybody better run. I think Franny is pissed. I agree with you. I think this was really poorly played by the Desiato men again. And Franny... Franny is like one of those people, one of those periphery people who people aren't worried about and are just kind of treating like shit and kicking around. Not unlike little man Eugene. They feel like some loose ass threads. Definitely Franny, Senator Grandma, worrying about little man. These are the people out there who are who are like hot with information and motivated beyond belief. And Michael is only Michael is so focused on just the core players. He's only looking at like the top three or four people on the call sheet for the show he's forgetting about all of the people down further on the call sheet who know everything i gotta tell you and you can tell me if you think i'm wrong if michael knew about adam and franny and specifically that adam told franny about killing rocco i feel like michael would be out buying franny a boat that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I think there's a good chance that, that Franny Franny goes to sea. Franny goes to sea with the Celtic goon edition. Yes, yes. Tied to her moped out in the rivers uh, or lakes. I'd be like, of- did you not see what we did to the last moped rider? Vroom, vroom. <laughs> there you go. That's nice. Uh, uh, Franny, meet us down at Yaya's the ninth in the lower ninth. We got yeah. a surprise for you. We've got a black suburban and a and a Volvo waiting for you. All right, before we close out tonight's episode, because we're just about done, I want to hit some. I want to hit some uh, fast reaction points from you from the trial because we didn't really go into the trial too much, but there were some real high points here. What do you think of the DA McKee going all bullshit, racist, Carlo, and her opening argument about you know? motive, defense, and character. 
I think she's fierce, and I think that she understands that with the Baxters, you're going to have to just, like, say everything you can and not hold back because there's going to be a point when they're going to put filters on what she can say and what she can do, and the more she can just kind of, like, vomit out of her face as much info as she can, be as big and bold as she can, the better. Like, she has to come at them like a bear's coming at you and you have to, like, raise your arms and yell real loud. Like, she has to do that because the Baxters are a bear. Okay, Mike, so what was your gut response when they said self-defense and they laid it all out with Kofi being the, the actual perpetrator of the crime. I think it was a masterstroke on McKee's part to undercut Xander, uh, Xander, Johnny Xander. Uh, that's the name of the defense attorney. I think it was a masterstroke on her part to undercut him introducing the self-defense argument for one thing by basically calling it in her opening that they're going to have to use self-defense because it's the only thing that possibly makes sense. I think that was kind of a masterstroke on her part. Uh, as far as that defense argument goes, out of context, the way Xander presents it, I mean, this guy's the master lawyer, car, used car salesman, right? He's, he's the reason lawyers uh, have such a bad reputation because he's slimy. He works for a crime boss, but he's also very good at what he does. I think out of context, if you haven't been watching the show, if you only know, if you don't know who Carlo is, if you maybe you know the Baxters, but if you don't know who Carlo is and you're just hearing Xander's words, it really does paint kind of a picture. I mean, it is Kofi coming down the darkened cell towards Carlo's cell. Not Carlo going after Kofi, you know. I think the idea of the 10 by 6 cell is your home and everyone has the, the quote he has, everyone has a right to be safe in their home. I think that's a little too cheesy. It's a little, you know, it's a little too let's go kiss some babies politician. Like you feel like you have to take a shower. But I, I do think they paint a great question of who really is the aggressor. When he's all done, I think it's a legitimate question. And, and remember, the defense doesn't have to prove you're innocent. It just has to prove that there's a, you know, uh, be that you're not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. If there's a little bit of doubt, you know, that's going to be enough to get you off. You only have to be a C plus student to, to be an effective defense lawyer. And, and that's what Xander's going for here. And I think he does a decent job of who is the actual aggressor based on this handpicked, curated, selected evidence of A, B, and C that I'm going to show you. Unfortunately, out of context, I think it was a pretty, pretty interesting and convincing article. Does, does it make your stomach turn to hear Justin James's testimony and the curb stomping and all and uh, curb stomping alone is revolting? But uh, how did Justin James hit you? Was he an effective witness for you if you're in the jury box? I thought he was. I mean, the, the entire curb stomping thing is insane. And were you, you familiar know, with that term beforehand? Had no, you ever heard of that? No. And I and I had a definitely like very visceral response. I mean, even when they started to kind of like hum and haw about whether or not they should give the definition, I was like, oh, no, the definition is going to be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to hear this. Um, but, you know, I, I thought that it was a really great and effective response to say, what's that tattoo? on your neck oh okay i mean that entire thing especially i mean given it by michael oh is that a scar on your neck right there is that what that is oh oh pardon me pardon me it, no okay it wasn't from right. your accident it was from your gang time 
I mean, you could see Michael's eyeballs working, trying to get it to a place where Xander could pick up the ball and carry it across. Michael makes some real. Michael makes some decisions here. He he makes some calls on uh, objections and things that he admits and things that he doesn't admit. That if I am the DA McKee, she's the one who is the most qualified to be cocking her head at how this trial is going based on how Michael is deciding. He doesn't admit things that he should definitely admit, and he allows Xander to get away with things. He's not presenting a balanced trial the way... I see it if I'm her, especially where where well, I'm probably already looking for bias because people fear the Baxters. I'm probably going into it if I'm that DA and she's so fierce as she is. And I'm looking at some of these decisions Michael's making, not allowing the the autopsy photos. Fuck yeah, you're getting the autopsy photos. You're going to listen to the M.E. describe in detail what happened to this boy's brain. Yeah. Yeah, you're not you're not their daddy as much as you may think you are, Michael. And that's how I want to end this episode as well. Is Michael feeling himself real hard in this episode? Uh, his daddy talk. Um, but the jury has the right to see what happened to this boy in prison, whether you like it or not, whether the Baxters like it or not, whether Xander likes it or not. You have to admit those pictures. That was shocking to me that he didn't let them in. Shocking to me. Little man Eugene. He leaves the courtroom while Cusack is testifying that Kofi acted like nothing happened when Rocco got killed because to Kofi, nothing did happen. He had no idea that he should have acted in any kind of way. So Cusack, being honest, but also being a real piece of shit, gets little Gene so incensed that he leaves the courtroom. Is Lee getting through to him in this scene when she follows him? Does, does she finally earned little man's trust here? Oh, I don't know. I think it's going to be a continuous wearing away. I, I don't I don't think she's through yet. I think she got through to him. I think the fact that he trusted her with the baseball and man, I, I know you have some thoughts about that baseball uh, being it's like the red violin from that movie from years ago, just kind of passing through everyone's hands. Uh, I think she I think he definitely trusts her between this and the conversation about Kofi's biological dad when, you know, going back a couple episodes when she found him under the bridge selling drugs. See, I just thought he made like a good case back at her about, you know, are you really going to stick with me like long term? So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he's he's street smart enough to be wary of her coming in there because I, I think he is old enough and I think he's smart enough to understand what desire is and what that means or at least have an idea of what that means. But he also knows that for the first time ever, he's got a room of his own at Little Big Mo's at Little and Big Mo's place, Little Mo and Big Mo's place. And he knows that Little Mo's dropping cash off to keep him afloat every couple of weeks and he's working. So he knows these things to be true because he's experiencing it from for Lee, he's just hearing fancy words from a pretty lady. You know, there's not really any action on her part to back up the things she's saying. He got he has actual concrete results coming in from desire. So going back to your question, I mean, do you think that she he has been fully won over do you think it's like i think she still has more work to do uh no i think i think she still has work to do i think it's going to be in her in her presence he's going to be swayed but when he goes home and he gets on that egyptian cotton threaded uh sheets and stuff <laughs> at little mo's i think he's gonna kind of you know forget about those sweet or words he when he looks Lee. around and lee's not there the next time he's in trouble i mean that's the reality of the situation lee is here for a short period of time and most people who have been yeah 
And most people who have been in a long-term poverty situation, remember, this show began with him saying that he drank pickle juice for breakfast and shared that with his siblings as that was their breakfast. So let's remember that there's a lot of people with well-meaning hearts that come into people's lives like this who stick around for short periods of time and then they get distracted and they head out again. So I'm sure he's been promised by various social workers, by people in the government, all different which ways. Oh, we've got your back. Oh, we've got your back. And in the reality, the only people who ever end up always being there are people like Desire. So why should he trust Lee? I think that's an excellent point. I think it's an excellent point. It's going like Franny, really like Charlie, uh, like a couple of characters. He really is this explosive loose thread that no one no one is fully paying attention to. And I think that's going to be the most interesting thing. I am, as we... Mike. I've got my eye right on him. I know. I know. You're the best closer. <laughs> You're the best closer in the history of the game. I've always said that about you. Thanks. I knew that. Uh, I have. I bought a baseball with your autograph on it. I paid a lot <laughs> of money. should. Poor fucking Michael having to buy back his own baseball that he's already owned. That he already Poor had... Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's strike poor Michael. What How... is the matter with you? How fu- well, I mean, I hate, I hate someone having to waste their money. But uh, sure. let, let's back it up. Uh, Michael having to buy back his baseball that he had already purchased at some point before. Uh, was that maybe some karmic ledger, or ledger uh, adjustment going on there? I hope what it is is a little wake-up call to Michael about how there are things out there that he didn't even realize were out there. When the baseball comes back to him, though, okay, regardless mm-hmm. of whether he knows that ball exists in on the planet, okay, the idea that it comes back to him, that it lands in his possession again, is unexpected for him. Sure. And I think that it's like a little metaphor for things that he thought he knew what was going on with them, and yet here it is right up in his face again. So I think that this, and I don't think this baseball's done, being a little, <laughs> being a little, uh, getting into some craws, because it it's really representative of, like, what goes around comes around. Other than just being a sad reminder of all this, I don't think he put any stock that it is connected to anything that could really damage him. I don't think he's really done the math on Little Man. I don't think he's really done the math on what Little Man knows and what he can do to hurt Michael and Adam. He has not done the math on that Lee is continuing to do so much work on this. That is another portion. I mean, he started off with a bang following Charlie's orders to fuck her, to control her, but he has really slipped and... But I, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I agree with you. Something tells me because now we've seen the baseball so often. I think I finally agree with you that the baseball is not done, though. I think Michael buying it back and now it being in his possession again and we see him holding it later on. I feel like Michael thinks the baseball is now taken off the table. That that's a piece against him and Adam that's now taken off the chessboard. And I think it's going to be one of those areas, one of several areas where he's going to be proven wrong. The very final thing I wanted to ask you about, we've talked this entire series that Michael thinks of himself as a good man. Michael thinks of himself as a righteous man. Michael thinks of himself as a father doing what he must and needs to do to protect his son. He's never been super cocky about it, though. He's never been super big ego about these feelings about himself. Uh, In fact, he often presents himself as being very humble and very filled with humility. In this trial, in this episode, two separate times talks 
to the jury and then talks to Jimmy about the jury, about how he is this father figure. He is their daddy. And that he will, if they just trust him, this is what he says to the jury, if you just trust me about what evidence you need to hear and not hear, then we'll all be okay. And then he tells my, uh, Jimmy, essentially, they look to me like their daddy. They're, by the time the trial is done, they're going to do whatever I tell them to do. Who is this motherfucker coming in here with this big ego, this big daddy dick energy that he's got going on? I don't like it. If I'm in that jury, I don't want any motherfucker telling me what I need to hear or don't hear. Bitch, you tell me everything and I will decide for myself. I'm a grown-ass man. I will decide for myself what I need to hear and what I need not to hear, sir. I did not like <laughs> I did not like any of that nonsense uh, in this episode. It was super gross. One of the many super gross things that Michael did in this episode. Yeah, I think it is one of those situations where he is playing the same exact game in all aspects of his life. I mean, he is trying to be, you know, super, super hands on with Adam in terms of like the pressure going to school, you know, talking to Freddie, do all these things like just being like so over the top suffocating with him and then doing the same thing with his jurors like i mean that i i've watched plenty of of shows where there's a judge i've never seen him come down go over to the jurors and say anything that sounded anything like that speech yeah even i mean the jury instruction that he gives the idea of you can't talk about this case outside or you will be thrown off that's all real that's all well, true sure. that's not the part i'm talking about i'm talking about the i'll let you know what you need to hear you need to trust me i've never heard a judge use language like that towards a jury me either and if i'm the da i'm like fuck Bitch, you know, no, you're good. They're going to hear what I want them to hear. Like these goddamn pictures of Kofi's face. There's no reason to not admit those. God, you and I went through undoing where we had to watch uh, poor Elena, uh, her mutilated face up on the screen constantly over and over again. again. I mean, but that's. Yeah, no one no one talks more than Michael does to the judge. Like he's been in some fucking old timey wisdom. Just shut up. Just shut up and go do your job. But his conversation and that was super annoying to me and would have turned me off if I was in the jury. Like, who are you? But his conversation to Jimmy, which and I get that he has to say that because Jimmy is like, uh, you are not doing enough. Uh, how, I mean, he's, he's objecting to every, anything that Michael allows to come in against Carlo, uh, especially with the Emmy's testimony. So I get why Michael has to say that, but the whole, the whole way, the, the condescending tone, the dismissive little child tone that he treat, that he talks about the jury as, even if it's true, and I'm sure, and, and it, it is true, juries do look to the judges to be the source of the law. You know, ju- judges are largely seen as above it all that you know not being for team a or team b just you know being there for you you know the that the judge is that is our avatar you know and so he's probably right in everything he's saying but the word choice he uses the way he presents it the way he tries to soothe jimmy into trusting him very gross very unsettling very great it really sets me up that if we get to a season two where michael does live and now he is this puppet of the baxters i feel like this is the seeds of where all that happens 
you know, Jimmy comes back to Michael at some point and is like, well, make them there. Give me that big daddy dick energy and make them your your little bitches and tell them what to do. Like he's set that precedent now that, that he has that power, that he's got that power over juries to do that. You think Jimmy's going to forget that? I don't think Jimmy's going to forget that. I, I hope he doesn't forget that because, you know, the relationship between Jimmy and Michael are, is what keeps the tension going here and keeps the clock ticking. You know, ever since Jimmy's put that time frame on this, it's like this can't just go on and on and on and on and on. This is this is happening. You know, something has got to happen by tomorrow. So I am looking forward to that. Episode nine. We are getting so close to some exciting, exciting business here. To, to be clear, I don't you I, don't you think that the, the thing that he's because he tells Jimmy I'm going to be making a move and you'll know about it when I do it. I think the move is getting Ms. Long off the jury. I think that's sure. the that's the move that he made and I think he got it. I, when when Jimmy sends the burner phone text that says 16 hours, you know, mm-hmm. I, I really laughed out loud. I was like, what oh, a, me too. such a dad move. Be like, make sure you home, make it home by curfew. Like that was like kind of like that kind of message. 16 hours? You got he still has 16 hours to go. You're sending him you're sending him final boss battle, like you're running out of time messages at 16 hours left. I don't know. I find it funny. So he's got it's it. Jimmy and Michael both have got nothing else to do. This is all they do now. I, they just make me feel more and more that we need to have a really uh, dramedy esque odd couple reboot yes. with the two of them. I think it would be fantastic. I thought about it this entire episode. I am more than ever convinced that that would be a solid, solid hit for Showtime. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, you guys. Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been an excellent episode of Your Honor, and I can't wait till next week. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's, the Your Honor podcast. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Tales from Yaya's. And I just want to take a moment out and thank everyone who does listen. Since we launched this podcast when the series uh, part one episode aired, it has been in the top hundred podcasts for TV uh, after show podcasts. That's because of you guys. So thank you to all that listen. Thank you all that leave comments and leave reviews. It means the world to us. And uh, yeah, I I can't, I can't say thank you enough. So keep listening and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been an original pod clubhouse production. Pod clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.